Be seated. Now, obviously, I'm not Corey. Uh, I'm pleased to be able to give him a chance to do some things with family today. And uh, I promise you, if you come back next week, it will be all better again. So I uh, also want to use the chance to encourage you to, to say something good to Corey. Uh, I have not seen a tougher time to be a pastor than what's been going on for the last few months. And so uh, I hope that you will find a chance to give him a word of encouragement and appreciation uh, for the work he's doing in, in this really, really tough time. And, and also, I, I've always liked doing worship outside, but it brings all kinds of challenges. And so uh, let's also show some appreciation to the setup folks and the tech people and the musicians and everybody that's worked to make this morning possible. Let's do it. <clears throat> well, today we're going to be continuing our study from the letter of James. Uh, James is the Latinized form of the Hebrew, common Hebrew name Jacob. And for those of you that are new today or who need to be reminding, uh, reminded that James we're talking about in this letter is presumed to be the uh, biological brother of Jesus. He was not a follower of Jesus until after the crucifixion and resurrection, but then he became a powerful leader in the church in Jerusalem. And the early church tradition gave him the title as the first bishop of Jerusalem. Uh, James died a martyr's death about 30 years after the crucifixion. And he probably wrote this letter to other Jewish Christians who had been scattered across uh, Syria and Asia Minor as a result of persecution. It is a very practical letter. It's about discipleship. James doesn't talk about salvation. He doesn't pick up on any fine points or argue about fine points about theology. But he wants folks to understand how to be disciples in their very difficult time that they're living in right now. And he's saying that this, the way to do this is by holding on to the highest standards of uh, moral living according to Jewish life and demonstrating that following Jesus is the way to embody the, the righteousness and the wisdom of God in this very tough time. James is writing before the Gospels have been written, so there's no reference to them. But the letter is pretty clear that he has a solid grasp of the teachings and the events of Jesus, and in particular, the Sermon on the Mount. It's an interesting parallel to read the Sermon on the Mount alongside the, the, the letter of James and see how he's working with that. And the first chapter that we've been in for the last few weeks really gives a quick overview of some topics that will be covered in the rest of the book as you go through it. And our passage today is James 1, through 25. In a lot of ways, it is the theme verse for the whole letter. This is really what James is all about. So I invite you to join me as we read those few verses today. That's James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like one who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at themselves goes away and immediately forgets what they look like. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom 
and continues to do this, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it will be blessed in all they do. My memory is not what it used to be, but I still remember this memory verse from over 60 years ago, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. There's a lot of stuff in here, and I'm not going to possibly begin to do it all today for you, but so I'm going to try to focus and talk about three things from this passage, and that is how word becomes walk, walk becomes life, and life becomes blessing. You join me as we pray. Uh, Lord, we've come from all kinds of places this morning. Uh, some are joyful and thankful to be here because it's been a good week and they want to rejoice in it. For others, it's been a tough week. They've dealt with difficult times. Some come with burdens of all kinds. And however we're here, Lord, we pray that you will meet those needs. And we, while, while we've made plans for today, we really give the time to you to do with as you will. And we pray that the things said will be true and point to you uh, and that we will be mindful of what you've asked us to do. In Christ's name, amen. When I was growing up, my mom would uh, sometimes say to me, did you hear me? Now, some of you know exactly what that means. She, she wasn't asking if my ears were picking up the sound waves that came across to me, and she, she wasn't asking if my brain was able to interpret those electrical signals into words, and she wasn't asking if my mind was able to understand what it was that she wanted me to do. My mother was asking me, why wasn't I actually doing what she asked me to do? And you find that same kind of exasperation, I think, here in this letter that James writes. It's like the, the old Nike motto, just do it, just do it. It's not some radically new idea. I'm sure that James heard it while he was growing up too. And his Bible, our Old Testament, also emphasized the need to actually do what God instructed his people to do. There seems to be a universal disconnect from instruction and action on that instruction. And, and that disconnect, that, that performance gap gets worse when we start talking about lifestyle changes. We resist. We resist even things that we agree with or say we agree with. We resist things that we know are good for us. Being a Bible doer is not easy. And it doesn't happen overnight. James' pastoral heart is more evident in the Greek than it is in any of our English translations that can seem pretty harsh or demanding here. Literally, James says, be becoming doers. And, and I think what this means is that this is a continual active process. We don't become doers in a moment of decision. We don't become doers by an act of will. We don't become doers overnight or in a week. Becoming a doer is like mastering a skill. I enjoy woodworking, and, and, and one of the most difficult things, at least for me, uh, is a dovetail joint. Now, a dovetail joint is where you've got those pieces of wood coming like together like this with, with the wood, and, and, and the fingers are cutting 
wedges like a dove's tail that's been spread out. And when you fit those pieces together, you've got a really strong joint. Woodworkers used to use it long before glues came on the scene. And when they got a good, a good dovetail joint, it's not only incredibly strong, they are really beautiful. And, and with a router and a jig, you can make some really excellent, excellent dovetail joints very quickly, very reproducibly, and they look nice. But doing it by hand, the old-fashioned way, is another matter altogether. Because you have to carefully mark out those matching dovetails on the wood, and you've got a precise angle that you're working and a precise depth, and once you've got it marked, then you've got to put it in a wood vise to hold it tight, and you use a, a thin back saw to cut those joints in there. And once you've got those joints cut very carefully, you have to use a razor-sharp chisel to clean it out and make sure they fit together. And you, and you try it and pull it apart and try it and pull it apart and keep making adjustments. It is maddening. And I don't do it very often. And I seem to make little progress at it. Usually I've made three pretty good dovetails and then I botch up the fourth one and it's messed up the whole piece of wood and I have to start all over again. Or maybe it's been a really long time since I've done it and it feels like I'm starting all over again and I've forgotten everything that I learned how to do before. Becoming a good dovetail maker is an unending process and I don't know if I'm ever going to get there. In the same way, becoming a doer of the word is an unending process. James knew that. He did not become a doer himself overnight. He still was not a perfect doer when he wrote this letter. He had lapses. But he knew that becoming a doer is not an optional for a follower of Jesus Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus asked, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like the one building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood came and the torrent struck that house, it couldn't shake it because it was well built. The word that's translated practice in this passage is the very same word that's translated doer in the letter of James. It's poetai. And if you heard poet in that, you heard correctly. The, the root word's poema, poem, poem. And it means one who makes or builds beautiful things like an author a musician, a craftsman. James is saying, dedicate yourselves to becoming a craftsman of the word of God. See, that's what God has already done in us and has called us to be. Paul, a contemporary of James, said it like this in his letter to the Ephesians. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Literally, Paul says, we are God's poem, created in Christ Jesus to do, to do good works, in which God had prepared in advance for us to walk. 
Some translate it, we are God's masterpiece. Wow, I like that. God made a beautiful thing when he made you and when he made me. And God intends us to likewise make beautiful things. This is one way we're made in the image of God. We are poets, musicians, authors, craftsmen. We bring beautiful things into being, into reality, by the way we live following God's word. Making those beautiful things, doing good works, is not just an occasional pastime like cutting dovetails. It's an ongoing, everyday activity of our walk, which is the common biblical way of talking about life. Our entire lives are intended by God to be filled with good works, a lifetime of poems, if you will, poems creating even more poems. It's not a harsh command, but it's an attractive invitation to fulfill our purpose, which gives God delight, blesses others, and returns blessing to us. So why don't we? Why is living as a doer of the word so hard? Why does it seem like drudgery in an uphill battle? Why is it one more thing crammed into an already too busy schedule? James says we deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves, and in doing so, we miss the beautiful, creative life to which God's called us. And we got to remember, James is writing to other followers of Jesus Christ like us. He's not writing to those pagans and bad people around there. He's writing to folks like us. Never underestimate our capacity to deceive ourselves. We are all gifted at it. And I can think of at least three ways that we lie to ourselves that are relevant to this passage today. One, we lie that nothing we do matters to God. After all, God is God, and God's decisions and intentions are beyond my understanding. Nothing I can do can make any difference about anything anyhow. Either I have a ticket or I don't, so why bother? Another way we can lie to ourselves is the lie that, that God is a cosmic killjoy just waiting to swat us. God really doesn't have our best interests in mind, but has given us arbitrary rules and laws knowing that we're going to fail and just takes delight in smashing us when we do. Doing good deeds is a way to avoid punishment. Actually, I could do a better job of life on my own, but it's not worth getting the beating. Third way we lie is that we lie that God is a tight-fisted bully who has to be paid off. Doing good deeds is the way we earn God's goodness. And I'll do just enough to earn my ticket and to get by. The thing is, these lies don't bring joy and satisfaction. But they bring anger and resentment. They make us hyper, inauthentic people frantically seeking purpose or they make us empty and defeated, having surrendered to futility in our lives. We may not hate God, but we certainly don't love God. 
and it shows in how we live our lives. James' answer to this self-deception is to look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. Wow, talk about a loaded verse. Just a quick run through the highlights here. James, like any good Jew, did not make a distinction between the word and the law. They're the same thing pretty much to him. So James is still talking about the word as he gets into this particular verse. But what is that? It's pretty clear he doesn't have much concern about the dietary and the ritual laws and all the things like that. And that's because his understanding of law and word has been focused through the work of Jesus Christ and the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I know everybody here has probably read through Leviticus, which is the primary law book of the Old Testament. It's one of those terrible things we have to read through sometimes. But we've got to remember that's the Bible of Jesus and James. And it's interesting that in the middle of Leviticus, in chapters 18 and 19, where there's a lot of things, a lot of rules and laws governing the relationships between people, right in the middle of this section is the command, love your neighbor as yourself. You didn't know that was in Leviticus, did you? You thought somebody in the New Testament made it up. But it's in the Old Testament. It's right there in the middle of the law book. And by the time of Jesus, many students of Scripture had come to the conclusion that the command to love neighbor as yourself, when coupled with the command from Deuteronomy 6 to love God, that they found the basis for all the law in the Old Testament. And Jesus agreed with that emphasis. We read in Matthew, one of them, an expert of the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's from Deuteronomy. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is not like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18 All the law and prophets hang on this. Everything in there hangs on those two pieces, loving God and loving our neighbor. Now, while many, including some Pharisees like Nicodemus, agreed with Jesus, there were others who were incensed by this. And the reason was that over the centuries since Moses, they had looked at the laws with a microscope. And by Jesus' day, they had elaborated and expanded those to over 600 laws, some incredibly picky. And as far as they were concerned, you couldn't be a faithful Jew without obeying them all. Jesus was very harsh toward these Pharisees because they used these 600 laws to criticize and belittle others while using the same picky methods of biblical interpretation to excuse themselves from those things that they found inconvenient. They made God's word into a club to beat others with. But James followed Jesus. When James wrote, be doers of the word, he was not talking about the word as expanded and used by the Pharisees in his day, but the law in its perfect purpose as given by God and affirmed by Jesus, which brings freedom, not bondage. This word 
This law sets us free from the lies with which we deceive ourselves. This word, this law, sets us free to do the good things for which God created us. This word, this law, sets us free to actually love God and not just fear and obey. The purpose of God's word is to bring life, not bondage. God loves life, and God gave life before he gave law. And Christ, the eternal and ultimate word, came that we might have abundant life, not abundant laws. Law is important. Jesus said that, but it's not the point. The point is life. The purpose is life. James says that the word deserves our careful attention if we ourselves are going to become doers of the word and experience the fullness of life that God intended for us. James says, look intently into the perfect law. But the translation there really doesn't capture the depth of meaning that James has. The word James used here means to stoop down and look into it. And I think what James means here, been using that word, is that we need to come to the word bowed in a posture of humility. You see, God's word is not ours to manipulate and to distort with fanciful interpretations. God's word is not a club that we can use to beat others while blissfully ignoring the things that impact us. God's word is not something for speed reading. God's word is not mere information to be tucked away in RAM up here someplace. And yet we're all prone to doing these things. And that's why, one reason why we need to have a faithful community of other Jesus followers to help us understand and interpret and imply, apply God's word in our life. God's word brings life. And that's the point. If whatever it is that we're doing with the word doesn't bring life, then we're doing something wrong. And that life of humility before the word brings blessing for both others and ourselves. James said, they will be blessed in what they do. And James doesn't elaborate on the nature of the blessing, but I think there are some clues. First, what James said literally is, they will be blessed in the doing. The act of doing the word brings its own blessing. Don't underestimate the value of doing the right thing. It brings its own reward. Second, Doing God's word puts us on the path for abundant life as God intended. There's more coming because of that. Third, doing God's word dispels the lies with which we deceive ourselves. That's how we get set free. The lies that we built our own prison with. And finally, given the influence of the Sermon on the Mount all the way through here, I got a suspicion that James is suggesting that the blessings of the Beatitude are realized in our doing of the word. That's when it happens. I said earlier, I've never seen a more difficult time. If there ever was a time for Christians to be a blessing by actually doing the word, this is it, at least for us. I don't think it's going to happen again in our lifetime. It's time for us to humble ourselves to God's word, creating life 
in the things that we say and do. Checking on neighbors, getting supplies for shut-ins, mourning with those who have lost, chasing away futility and fear with God's encouragement. In just a few moments, we're going to be taking communion, and I'd invite you to consider how to respond to God's word this morning. Maybe you've never made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Maybe you are a follower, but you've never really studied God's word in a posture of humility, or maybe you need to consider how to actually do God's word, blessing others and being surprised and being blessed yourself. However your God is working in your life today, I invite you to respond to that. And so before Bruce comes and leads us in communion, I'd like to close the study with this word of encouragement from Paul. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts unto God. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen.